What happens when we don't have confidence in something? Sometimes we might start off with confidence in something and then lose that confidence. Have you ever become unsure of something's trustworthiness or someone or something's ability to get the job done? Maybe it's strength or uh, it's power. Uh, maybe you lost confidence in a business you once relied on. Uh, maybe you had like a barber or a, a hairdresser that you're like, they always do it well. Uh, and then one day you're like, they didn't do it well. And then you <laughs> lost confidence in them. Or maybe you had this car that you're like, they can get me anywhere. And then something happened where you're like, I don't really want to take it that far from home. And so you lost confidence in that thing. Or maybe there's a person in your life that uh, you once trusted them, but then they let you down too many times. And so then you lost confidence in them. Or maybe you lost confidence in yourself. So at one point you were confident there was some there was this thing you could do or this you had this ability and now you've lost confidence in that ability or you lost confidence in yourself. And sometimes we don't lose confidence in something um, because maybe we never had confidence in that thing to begin with. We, we didn't lose it because we never had it. We just always lacked the confidence and that was never there to begin with. Uh, you might look at a car that is half rusted to pieces and it's, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody's trying to sell you a car and they start it up and it's just like, blah, 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 and you're like kind of <laughs> rattling around and you're just like, eh, yeah, I'm not getting in that or I'm not buying that, and, you know, or you, uh, somebody, I don't know, if they, you know, Dolores drives for Uber and maybe you had an Uber driver drive up, this isn't Dolores, I'm not describing her, maybe you have an Uber driver drive up and you look at their car and it's just like, and the, the drivers, you know, I don't know, for some reason they just look like, I don't think they're going to get me to where I need them to get me, and you just never get in the car. Never mind, I'll just wait for the next person. And you just always lack confidence. You never had confidence in the person to begin with. And when we were, um, what, there's a person that I lost confidence in, you know, this isn't going to be like some you know, great personal story of, you know, heartbreaking story, but when we were getting, there's this person I always like set an appointment with for my hair um, when I was in college because she always did this amazing job. Katie always loved her, the job she did with my hair and she was always like, oh, you know, it's a great haircut. So leading up to our wedding, we're like, okay, we've got to set an appointment for this person to cut my hair and it's like, this is going to be great. And then so I come home from this hair appointment and Katie looks, she's like, what does she do to your hair? I mean, it was like, I don't know if she, the person I told her, like, yeah, I'm getting married in two weeks, you know, we like, we, or like a week or something. So we said it so it didn't look like I was super freshly haircut. You know, you didn't want it to be like, what did you get your haircut yesterday? But it's like, you know, I've kind of grown in a little bit. So we set it like a week out. Katie looks at my hair and is like, what did she do? So then Katie fixed my hair and then she's cut my hair ever since. She's like, I'm not going to send you someplace to pay $15 so I have to fix your hair. You know, if they can't do it right, I'm just going to do it. So she's cut my hair to this day ever since. So, uh, But anyway, that's someone I had confidence in, lost confidence. Uh, but maybe there's someone we lack confidence in. And sometimes we lack confidence in something for no good reason. Sometimes we have a good reason to lack confidence, but sometimes there's no good reason. For instance, some people will refuse to fly on airlines. And I mean, in the news recently, there's been a lot of issues with some of the the, the airplanes, but um, if you like look at data and studies and stuff, people show that air travel is safer than car travel. And you could, you know, maybe some of you are like, man, I can't get myself in an airplane. But then you could show all the data that you want. You could look at all the data, like I know it's safer. I know there's more car crashes than plane crashes. More people die driving the car, and yet you're still like, I'd rather drive, even though there's higher risk. It's more dangerous than fly, and you lack confidence in flying. 
even if there isn't a super great reason. It might just be a control thing, like I need to have my hands on the steering wheel, but in terms of danger, just like I just can't get over that thing, even though it's less dangerous, you know, we might lack confidence in something for not a good reason. And so we're going to just take a moment uh, and dissect what are the symptoms of lacking confidence in something or losing confidence. How do we act when we lack confidence in something? What do we do? Uh, what do we act towards something we lack confidence in? I think we might avoid it. So avoid it, yeah. So if there's a car or something, we just are like, oh, I'm not going to get it. It's going to sit in the driveway for a while. <laughs> yeah. So avoid it. Something we lack confidence in, we'll avoid it. Isolate. Isolate ourselves from it. Have kind of an attitude of skepticism. Skepticism, yeah. Question it. It's like, yeah, yeah, not the benefit of the doubt. The opposite of the benefit of the doubt. Okay, yeah. Like a person. Okay, yeah, person. Yeah. We, yeah, we're going to be always be like, mm, yeah, instead of being like, I'm going to believe the best in them, I'm going to have skeptical t- towards them, so uh, not believing the best. Anything else? Any other symptoms that we might see if we are lacking confidence in something? Mm-hmm. I'd say stress, anxiety, because you're taking oh, yeah. on too much instead of letting other people help you. Okay. And if you're in a car, I keep thinking of the car examples, but if you're in a car, if you have to be in a car with someone you lack confidence in driving, or the car, I mean, I've had that, where I'm just like, like gripping the steering wheel, you know, you have the stress and anxiety. You're like, I guess I just have to be in this thing, you know. But <laughs> I, yeah. I think her point is also including lack of delegation. Lack of oh, you wouldn't entrust something to them, okay? Lack of delegation. Oh, is that what you were kind of saying? Like Heather? you're yeah. controlling and taking on too many things. I see. I didn't. I wasn't catching that, but you that's what you're saying. Stress. I see. Okay, like so, you would be stressed and anxious because you don't want to give things. And you're taking okay. on, yeah, taking okay. on too much. Those are connected. Wait, Not entrusting. Hudson, Hudson's old enough to start driving. Stop it! Don't think. <laughs> you got a few years. Yeah. <laughs> you might test the person or situation or thing. Okay. How do we act when we lose confidence? We might test it. Test it out. Test it out. You'd want it to like maybe prove it, prove itself. Prove it, right? Or it themselves. I think one other thing is like you could be become like angry or bitter towards other people because you can't. You know, you don't have that confidence in them. Can't rely on them. Mm, resentment. Yeah, like you got burned. Maybe you lost confidence. Like you, you know, I want to rely on you, and I can't. I really need to. You're feeling stress and anxiety, and so you're angry and bitter and resentful. Yeah. Once burned, twice shy. Yeah, especially if you feel like you're supposed to entrust yourself to them or 
you're supposed to have confidence like yeah but I don't or if you're in a position where you yeah are being asked to yeah like a boss or something like I'm supposed to have confidence in you but now I'm just in constant fear or an embarrassment in that situation if you happen to know that that uh, someone in authority like a boss is incompetent so you know that others have lost confidence in them so you have to and you're embarrassed okay. so embarrassment <coughs> yeah yeah or kind of really it is a sense of like hiding or I don't know what the word is but like yeah, if you're supposed to have confidence, but like everyone else does in a boss, for instance, or in a company, but you don't. Hmm. And it's like kind of living like... You're on the outside. What's that? You're on the outside. Yeah. <laughs> and, and sort of like, you know, in turmoil within, kind of a cognitive dissonance or whatever. Else. So you might kind of try to stay in the background, like everyone else is rooting for this person, but you're like, mm-hmm. kind of, okay, so you might hide, which might be kind of similar to the Avoiding, but a little different. His phrase, cognitive dissonance, mm-hmm. that's a great one for that. Phrase. Which would be, let's put that in layman's terms, cognitive <laughs> dissonance. <laughs> well, it's like your mind is fighting. Okay, so you feel like an yeah. internal yeah. tension almost. Fit. Yeah, it's yeah. an internal tension that you've got to, okay. Yeah. Or an internal, um, like turmoil. Turmoil. Yeah. internal turmoil. Okay, internal, you might feel turmoil. All right, well, let's leave our list at that. We can maybe come up with more. Um, we've got some symptoms for why we might lack confidence in something. Well, currently we're in between two series. Um, so this is like a one-off message. Uh, and we're going to be talking about evangelism. And if you aren't familiar with the word evangelism, it comes from the Greek word for gospel. Um, evangelism is the, is the process of sharing the gospel. It's, it's gospeling. Um, or good news in gospel means good news. And so evangelism is the process of telling uh, or proclaiming or preaching or sharing the gospel, the good news, good news in gospeling someone. But um, why are we talking about this? Why would this be the thing that we, you know, I do a one standalone message on? Um, November and December, I probably mentioned this in a couple messages, I was praying about our growth theme for 2020 last year. I was relying on the Spirit, and we did a sermon series on relying on the Spirit, uh, around the Spirit. Uh, as I was praying this year, God brought evangelism to me, and evangelism is a big part of our church. If you look at our mission statement, we're not only surrendering all of life to Jesus for ourselves, um, we're also wanting to invite others to surrender all of life to Jesus for them to do the same. That's evangelism. And one of our community practices is going as messengers to tell the good news to other people. That's evangelism. Our vision as a church is to show and tell the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child. That's evangelism. Not to mention the very name of our church is Good News Church. And so if we're going to live up to our name as a church, we need to be about evangelism, telling others about the good news of Jesus. And when it comes to the topic of evangelism, telling others about Jesus, it's often one that makes us kind of squirm in our chairs because uh, there are some of us who maybe feel excited about it, like, yes, I want to do that, I am doing it, I want to learn how to do it better. Um, but many of us feel guilty because we're like, okay, um, I know I'm supposed to be doing that, uh, I know I'm supposed to be doing more of it, um, but I'm not. Um, and so we feel guilty about it a lot of times. And other of us, just the hearing the word of evangelism starts to make us feel tense and get knots in my, our stomach, just the thought of talking to somebody else about 
our faith makes us feel terrified and like, oh no, you know, past we're going to talk for you know, 40 minutes about this and can I just make it through today and maybe next week will be better or I'll skip and say I'm sick. I'm sad not to come if I'm sick, I'll just skip. Shouldn't have come today. I thought I felt sniffly. <laughs> I knew it. Uh, but I wonder if at least some of our difficulties with evangelism boil down to a simple problem, which is that we lack confidence in the power of the gospel. It's that we lack confidence in the power of the gospel. And if we think about it, do the symptoms fit? Do the symptoms fit that we've said here when we lack confidence in something or perhaps lost confidence in something? That Do we avoid it? Um, do we isolate ourselves from it? Do we have skepticism about it? Do we believe the best that when we share the gospel with somebody, do we believe something's going to happen? Do we expect something's going to happen? Do we expect God's going to do something? Do we expect people to be responsive? Or do we expect just nothing's going to happen or people are going to hate us? Um, do we uh, have stress and anxiety about it, that it's all up to us? And, you know, I'm just, I know that maybe some of this is t- not exactly going where people were going with it, but we maybe have even anger and bitter and resentment. Like, God, why have you asked me to do that? I'm just tired of having to think about having to do this. We have fear. Maybe we feel embarrassed about it. And we have this inner turmoil about it. About it. And, you know, maybe do some of the symptoms fit of that we lack confidence um, in the power of the gospel. We're going to look at Romans, just two verses today. Um, but there's plenty there because they are basically the theme of the letter of Romans. Um, Romans 1, 16 to 17 is our main passage. And these verses are found in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And Apostle Paul is a man who came to faith in Jesus. Uh, he was a hater of Jesus and then became uh, a great evangelist, someone who was telling others about Jesus. And we heard in our second scripture reading that he's praying for the Romans. Uh, he wants to come visit them. And... He had been wanting to come visit them in person for a long time. He hopes that he can spend some time together with them so they can be mutually encouraged in their faith, his faith and their faith. Uh, and then he says in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. And he's talking, uh, he wants to reap a harvest among them and among the Gentiles. And so he has in mind, I want to preach the gospel to the believers there. I mean, that's what we're going to do this morning. You're going to hear the gospel from me because the gospel is a mutual encouragement to believers. It's good for us to hear it. It encourages us in our faith. But he's also saying, I want to reap a harvest you know, from the non-believing people there too. I want to, wherever Paul went, he's like, I want to talk to people who don't yet know Jesus. And so he's thinking, I'm going to come talk to the church. I'm going to talk to people who aren't believers too. And this is where Romans 1.16 comes in. The verse starts with a for, you know, which is like a fancy word of saying because... Uh, you know, why are you eating that sandwich? It just it sounds a little more fancy instead of saying, because I'm hungry, for I am hungry. You know, it's a, you know, for is like a fancy word way of saying because. Uh, and when, whenever you see a, a for, you, know, you can think because, um, and it's answering the question why. Uh, in these two verses, we're going to see you know, three of these fo- fors or because. And sometimes in letters like this, it just becomes confusing. It's like you know, kind of string together a bunch of these fours, for, for this, for that, for this. It's like, what is going on here? And I just find it easy to put a why in there. Um, I put the question in there, why? So in verse 15, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And then verse 16 starts with a four. So I said, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Why? Verse 16 is the answer. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There are several parts of this verse, so let's go part by part. Paul's eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel, he says. Being ashamed of the gospel has to do with feelings of embarrassment or fear of ridicule because of the gospel. And the opposite of that, you know, there's one, you, he's kind of saying, I'm not ashamed of it. And so what he's saying, I am actually, I'm confident in it. And I'm bold about it. And he's saying I'm eager to preach the gospel because um, I'm not embarrassed of it. I have no fear of being ridiculed for it, but rather I'm confident in it. I'm bold about it. His confidence is not a shame. But, but why is that? The next part of the verse starts with another four. And so, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why does Paul have this confidence and boldness when it comes to the gospel? Why is Paul not ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel? Why is he eager to preach the gospel? He says, because it's the power of, salva- of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul's eager to preach the gospel because he's confident in the gospel. And he's confident in the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And at the end of verse 16, the end of verse 16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to Everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And this reminds us of the Gospels for everyone, all people. It maybe was first preached to the Jewish people by Jesus and then by the apostles. And that was Jesus was a Jew uh, and he came to the Jewish people, the people of Israel. Um, Jesus was Israel's promised Messiah and so God was coming to them. But then it went out to the non-Jewish world as well. That was God's plan all along. God is the God of all people with a plan of salvation for all people. The the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, not people of one color or one ethnic heritage or one nationality. But this leads us to an important question that deserves our attention. What is the gospel? What is this gospel that is the power of salvation? Paul is eager to preach it. He's not ashamed of it. He's confident in it. Verse 17 tells us what the gospel is. It starts with a for, or a because, which means it's answering a why question again. Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Verse 17 is the answer. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And that's just, you know, from faith for faith is just, you know, it's like, what is going on there? That's just another way of saying, you know, from faith beginning to end. You know, A to Z, it's all about faith. That's the way you receive it. But let's focus on this, the righteousness of God part. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The gospel message explains the righteousness of God. And, but what is that, the righteousness of God? What does that mean? And many people down through the centuries of the church have discussed and debated, what does that little phrase mean? And there's two main options that we can come down to. The righteousness of God in that verse can refer to God's righteous character that he possesses in himself. God is righteous. You know, if you said, hey, Mitch is a righteous guy, we could say God is a righteous guy. So the righteousness of God is, you know, Mitch is, you know, the righteousness of Mitch. Mitch possesses Righteousness, or the righteousness of Larry, the righteousness of Bob. You know, the righteousness of God is God's righteous character. The second option is the righteousness of God refers to the gift of righteousness 
that God possesses that he can give to other people. You know, so God can give a righteous status to somebody. Like he can say, um, Dolores, you are righteous. He has righteousness. He can give it to other people. Um, he can hand it out to other people. He can declare other people righteous, and he can declare it to people who believe. So when we believe, God can say, okay, you believe, and I'm going to declare you righteous. That's a gift he can give. And scholars today tend to argue that we don't have to choose between the two, that it's actually both. That when you go through the letter, it's actually both of these are at play, especially when you look at Romans chapter 3, which we're not going to go through because that would be a whole other sermon. But the gospel reveals both God's righteous character and God's gift of righteousness to us. The gospel reveals God's righteous way of giving righteousness to people who are unrighteous. The gospel reveals God's righteous way of giving righteousness to people who are unrighteous. And if you think like, okay, this is getting weird. God, the gospel reveals God's righteous way of giving righteousness to people who are unrighteous. But you should think like, that is kind of weird. Like, how, why would God give righteousness to people who are unrighteous? You know, if a bad person, why should a bad person be given goodness? Why should an unrighteous person be given righteousness by a righteous God? Like, that kind of sounds corrupt. Like, a good judge shouldn't be giving out good sentences to bad people. Like, how could God still be a good, just, righteous judge if he's given out you know, the wrong sentence to bad people. And to understand this, we need to answer the question, what is the gospel? And gospel means good news, but we can't understand the good news unless we understand the bad news. And if we go down just one more verse, verse 18 will help us understand. And again, we see another for or because. And so it's answering a why question. Why does the righteousness of God need to be revealed? Verse 18 is the answer. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The righteousness of God is the, is the solution to this problem that's been already revealed in verse 18. That the righteousness of God needs to be revealed because the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven, and the wrath of God, you know, think about this as, as God like flying off the handle, you know, like if you had um, somebody just losing their temper about something. But the wrath of God is God's settled uh, anger and opposition towards things that are evil, towards things that are um, wrong. And in this case, it's his opposition against ungodliness, against unrighteousness. God is against ungodliness. And you could call ungodliness like anti-godness, you know, ungodliness is kind of like a, you know, like a religious word, but think of it as anti-godness. We know what it's like to be anti-something. You know, it's like anti-godness. Anti-godness is rejecting God, rejecting his ways of doing things. Anti-godness is making someone or something else uh, uh, better, higher than God and opposing his ways. And God opposes that. God is against that. You know, go figure, God is anti-anti-God. Does, doesn't that make sense that God wouldn't be for people being anti-God? He's our creator. We're to worship and serve him alone. We cannot reject our creator in his ways. And to do so means condemnation and death. And Romans 3.23 says that all people have done this. No matter how good you think you've been in your life, 
uh, in the past or up until now, at some point in it, and even every single day, you have been anti-God in your ways. Because if you think about today or last week or the last month, your whole life, you've had not lived every minute and every day thinking, how can I please God in every single moment of it? And you've had days and hours and, and years of anti-God attitudes of thinking, how can I please myself? And how can I make this about me? And how can I um, love me rather than love this person? And how can I direct my life down the paths that I'd like it to go rather than, God, what would you like me to do today? How would you like me to glorify you today? How would you like me to worship and serve you today? So we've all lived anti-God lives, going our own way, as good as we may think we are. And maybe we think, like, others have done it more intensely than me. But it doesn't matter. All have fallen short of living a, a life that is totally devoted to God. And therefore, the wrath of God is revealed against our anti-Godness. We all deserve it. But we've all heard that the gospel is the power of God of salvation, for salvation. And so how does God save people who are anti-God? Why would God save people who are anti-God? If we're anti-God, why would he save us? And we heard that the righteousness of God has been revealed, and this gift of righteousness is from God to us. And how could God give a gift of righteousness to people who are anti-God? Why would he ever do that? Give a free gift like that to us. And Romans 4, 5 says that God justifies the ungodly, meaning he declares the ungodly innocent. He declares anti-God people innocent of their crime of being anti-God. How can God justify the ungodly? How can God declare people who are guilty innocent while he himself still remaining righteous? How could God do that? That's what we call corrupt judges, right? If the judge lets people go for crimes they've committed, that's a bad judge. How can God forgive the guilty while still being a just and righteous judge? How can God still be holy, the holy, just, righteous, and good creator and judge of the universe while letting guilty, go, guilty people go unpunished? How can God give righteousness to people who are unrighteous? It's corrupt to let guilty people go free and not pay for their crimes. And so often we struggle with the question, how could God ever send anyone to hell? How could God ever send anyone to hell? What, what a jerk. Well, we, that's like the question we struggle with. And that's the opposite question that the Bible often struggles with. The question the Bible often wrestles with is, how could God not send everyone to hell? That's Because we're all unrighteous, we're all ungodly, we're all anti-God, and so how could God be just and not send all of us to hell? That's the question the Bible's wrestling with. We all deserve it. And I think we struggle with our question because we have a low view of God's holiness and a low view of our sin. And, we, and so we lack uh, a good view of what is actually the reality. And the answer to all of these questions is found in the Gospel. And the Gospel reveals how God lets guilty people go free. If we have a low view of God's holiness and a low view of our sin, we will not praise God as we should for the gospel. The gospel reveals how God declares guilty people innocent. The gospel reveals how sinners can be set free from the penalty of their sin. The gospel reveals how God justifies the ungodly. The gospel reveals how God can forgive people who are ungodly and unrighteous. And the gospel reveals how God saves people who are anti-God and reveals how he does so while staying righteous himself. And the answer is Jesus. And the gospel is the good news 
about Jesus, living the life we should have lived, and dying the death we should we deserve to die in our place, so that when we trust in Him as our Lord, we are set free from all of that. That He served the sentence we should have served, and He died the death we should have died. He suffered our penalty, and He paid our debt. He substituted Himself in our place. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God, because in it we hear the plan of God, where in His love and His grace He sent His Son to die for our sin in our place. And God can declare the ungodly righteous because the death of his son satisfies his wrath that's been revealed against our ungodliness and our anti-godness. And Jesus suffers as one who is anti-God in our place, even though he was totally for God in everything he did. And the good news is that we aren't just able to come back to God, you know, kind of like, okay, fine, you can come back, but you're going to have to work it off. We were able to come back to God, but declared innocent, blameless, white as snow. We sang Jesus paid it all, and now we're white as snow because Jesus paid it all. That's possible because God himself took on our debt. He paid the penalty and he suffered the sentence in our place by sending his son. And so God is both simultaneously righteous and the one who gives righteousness. The gospel reveals God's righteous way of giving righteousness to people who are unrighteousness. And that's because he paid for it himself through Jesus, his son. And that's why the gospel is the power of God for salvation, because God paid for salvation. It's God's power and might on display. It shows his generosity and his ability to do what we could never do for ourselves. It's God's plan and wisdom on display. It's the power of God's love, grace, and mercy on display. And there's another reason why the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes because God could save people by any way he wants. And sometimes he goes out of the norm or uses a dream or something. But still, even when he uses a dream, uh, usually he leads a person to another person to talk to them. God could save people by any way or means he wants. But the way he chooses to use his power to save people is through people telling other people about Jesus. He wants us to proclaim the gospel to people who don't yet believe. God puts his power behind that event of one person telling another person about Jesus to bring other people to salvation. And so when when Paul says uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, everyone believes, Paul is saying he knows when I preach the gospel to people, when I tell the good news to people, when I invite people to surrender their life to Jesus, when I go as a messenger of the gospel, when I'm going to do this with people, he knows that God puts his power behind that to bring people to salvation. It's not every single person, but Paul knows that God uses that event of one person speaking the gospel to another person to work faith in that person. He uses that to bring someone who doesn't believe to bring them to believe so that they can now have salvation for the very first time in their life. And so... If we were to flip um, to Romans 10, we would see Paul telling us uh, and explaining and saying later in this letter that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. It's without exception. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus as your king, put your faith in him, surrender your life to him, trust in him, believe in him. We just got out of this series looking at pictures of following Jesus and what that looks like, and so we have a good picture of that. Um, what does it look like to follow Jesus? If we say, I want him as my king, he saves everyone who puts their trust in him as their king. Then he talks about, well, how are people to call on him unless they have heard of him? 
And how are they to hear of him unless they're told about him? And how are they supposed to be told about him unless someone's preaching them? And how are they supposed to preach to him unless they're sent to them? And then he talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who go with the good news. And then he ends with, you know, so faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. And so somebody cannot have faith unless they hear. And what they need to hear is the word of Christ. They need to hear the gospel. And Larry's reading that he read for us from 1 Peter says the same thing. He talk, Peter talks about these people that he's writing to were born again. How are they born again? By the word, by the gospel that was preached to them. And so people, when we tell people about Jesus, there's this opportunity that you might see a miracle happen before your eyes. That somebody dead in their sins might be born again to new life. Salvation might happen to them. And it can only happen by them hearing the word about Christ, the gospel, the good news, about them hearing about Jesus. And there's you know, lots of things we can talk to people about. We can talk about God. We can talk about all these things. But when they hear about Jesus and have this opportunity to respond to him, we can see a miracle happen before our eyes of someone going from death to life, of not knowing God to knowing God. And God worked the power of God for salvation, of hearing the good news preached then. And there's a big idea, if you remember one thing from today, maybe the big idea for our year, is this. Telling someone about Jesus could change their life forever. Telling someone about Jesus could change their life forever. Telling someone about Jesus could change their life forever. And it's a could, because it's, you know, maybe you don't just lack confidence. You know, we can lack confidence in something because maybe we've never tried it and we just say, you know, there's not a real great reason for me to lack confidence. I just, I just lack it. Maybe you've lost confidence. Maybe you've been like, I worked up the courage. I told someone about Jesus and it didn't work. And it's not a guarantee. Like it, there's, three, there's three people at play Anytime we tell someone about Jesus, you know, there's your part. You need to tell them about Jesus. But then there's there's their part and there's God's part. They need to respond in faith. God needs to work in their heart. They need to respond to God's work in their heart. And so your part is to tell them. And there's, you know, two other people's parts that need to be at work there. And so our part is just to be faithful. And that's why I've always liked um, what we... I would say when I worked in college ministry, which is successful evangelism, stepping on faith and the power of the Spirit, leaving the results to God. You know, that's our part, stepping on faith, the power of the Spirit, and the results to God. And telling someone about Jesus could change their life forever, not just you know, from the age of 20 or whatever age they are when they come to believe to when they die, but forever, eternity. This is Eternity is at stake for people. And we have an opportunity to be a part of changing people's eternity. But a response is required in their part because Paul says it's the power of God for salvation not to every single person in the world but everyone who believes. There's a response of faith, of an act of the will by which someone says, I'm going to surrender to Jesus, I'm going to trust in him, place my faith in him. We're going to Let's take a moment as we are uh, thinking about what would we do uh, as an, a way to respond to what Paul says here. How can we increase our confidence in the gospel?
And if you think about these two phrases, without Christ and with Christ, um, think about, do you lack confidence in the gospel? One reason may be because, um, do you believe that without Christ, people are lost and destined for a godless eternity in hell? Really ask yourself that. Do you believe that without Christ, the people in your family, at work, neighbors, and friends, do you believe that without Christ, people are lost and destined for a godless eternity in hell? Do you believe that only with Christ, people can be redeemed and live with God forever? Because unless we believe those two things, we will have absolutely no urgency or desire to tell them about Jesus. Because why would we? Well, if they're going to be pretty okay without Jesus, and if there would be some other way to improve their life, like, well, why would we believe that Jesus has any bearing on the rest of them? Why would we even care about you know, possibly losing a relationship or making it uncomfortable? I mean, you probably won't lose a relationship anyway, and it probably won't even be that uncomfortable, for the record. Uh, it probably will just be, you know, either they're not interested or it'll be just like an okay conversation or they'll, you know, probably not much will happen uh, in terms of like, you know, them hating you or anything. So like, let's just get that clear. Uh, but, uh, you know, if we don't believe that without Christ, people are lost and destined for a godless eternity in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we affirm as a church. We won't have any sort of, we won't lack confidence in the gospel. That's what the gospel teaches. But if we don't really believe that for people, we won't have any reason to tell them about Jesus. On the other side, do we believe that only with Christ people can be redeemed and live with God forever? That's what Paul says. He says, I, the reason that I want to preach the gospel is because I'm confident in it. And the reason I'm confident in it is because I know it's the power of God for salvation. And the reason I know it's the power of God for salvation is because the righteousness of God is revealed in it. And the reason the righteousness of God is revealed in it is because the wrath of God has been revealed. There's really bad news for everybody who does not believe in Jesus. And I know that telling people about Jesus can, bring the, can save them. And so I'm confident to preach it, and I'm eager to preach it, and I need to tell people about it. And so he just knows this is absolutely true. Without Christ, people are destined for hell. And he's like, with Christ, this is their only hope for salvation. So he says, I need to tell people. You know, this has been a challenging passage for me because I'm like, I don't know if I believe those things. You know, it's a, somebody I was with this week was saying, you know, for all of our children's workers, every one of us, you know, and for me as a licensed minister of gospel in the EFCA, we have to sign our statement of faith in the Article 10. Uh, our statement of faith talks about eternal destiny. You have to mark off on it um, that you, you know, believe where, where people are going uh, after they die. Like, you know, do I fully affirm this and assent to it? You know, no, with no reservation. Yes, and every one of you who you know been in children's ministry for our church, we all had to mark that and assent to it. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying, as an example, like we all had to mark that. I fully affirm this. I've said I fully affirm it. Is that gone from here down to here? Is that okay? I affirm that with my head. Am I living it with my heart? That I really believe with my heart, with compassion, that every person I walk to, without through past, without Christ. Uh, or lost and destined for a godless eternity in hell. And then, but then that's for people we know. But then for us, you know, Paul really believed it for himself. He really believed for him personally. Without Christ, 
Paul would say, I was destined and lost. I was destined for a godless eternity in hell. Do I believe that for me? Or is it just like, well, you know, I kind of, Jesus kind of helped, but I kind of made it on my own. Like, do we believe that without Christ, we were destined for a godless eternity in hell? And then do we believe that only with Christ, we were redeemed and now can live with God forever? So there's a, we need to look at it for ourselves too, unless we believe that. So I'd encourage you to create a, a prayer list of people in your life, um, and then have a kind of at the top of it and pray the without Christ and with Christ. And a great verse that gives you the bad news, you know, the bad news without Christ, the good news with Christ. Um, a good one is Romans six twenty three, says the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. All these people, the wages of sin, what they earn for their life is death. That's the bad news. The free gift of God, Christ Jesus, is eternal life. That's the good news. And pray that for them. Pray, do I believe that for me? Pray Romans 6.23 for them. John 3.16 is another good one. For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son, whoever shall believe in him shall have eternal life. Good news. And shall not perish. Bad news. Everyone who does not believe in him will perish. That is bad news. Good news is all the stuff that came before it. So create a list of people you're praying for and pray, you know, God, give me compassion that without Christ, they're lost. And God, would you let me believe and have confidence in the gospel of this good news? And so I'm going to be praying that for myself and I'm praying that we can grow into and as a church that we would believe the gospel for ourselves, um, that we would believe it and have growing confidence for it uh, in it this year. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Paul and his confidence that he shows us in the gospel, that he's eager to preach it, because he's confident in it, because he knows it's the power, your power for salvation to everyone who believes. So would you grow us in our confidence and our compassion? It's in your son's name we pray.